Hey everyone, this is Matt Kamen, co-founder of Envision Consulting and the host of the podcast, Nonprofit on the Rocks. Before the pandemic, the part of my job that I loved the most was going on happy hours with my clients, with nonprofit leaders, and just anybody who was a badass do-gooder in nonprofit. Over drinks, I'd learn why they got into nonprofit, what inspires them, what keeps them motivated, and what drives them insane. When everything shut down, I realized how much I missed those conversations. And honestly, drinking alone right now isn't that much fun. So then it occurred to me that not only do these conversations not have to end, but maybe there are like one or two listeners out there who'd like to listen. People like me, who are tired of the same boring industry podcast and want something different. So pull up a seat, pour yourself a drink, and join me in the conversation. Hello to everyone, although I think at this point it's still just like one or two listeners. I'm expecting a lot from you, Rachel. I'm expecting a lot from you. Uh, anyway, welcome to Nonprofits on the Rocks, and I'm your host and co-founder of Envision Consulting, Matt Keeman. Today, I'm talking to the lovely Rachel Fine, who is the Executive Director and CEO of the Wallace Theatre in Beverly Hills. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Thank you. I mean, we'll find out if that's the case afterwards. So. <laughs> Before we talk about the nitty-gritty and COVID and all of that good stuff, first, since this is a happy hour, what are you drinking? What'd you order? Well, Matt, this is somewhat of a tribute to you. I have to tell you, there's a little history with this drink. This is a martini. And once upon a time, I used to drink a gin martini up with olives. Nice. It's now a vodka martini up with olives. And my husband is horrified because he claims that a real martini is a gin martini, But we had a long conversation, I think, when we were having a real happy hour together a year ago about vodka. And so because of you, this is a Belvedere martini up with many, many olives. And usually I like it a little dirty, too, but I was in a rush tonight. So that makes me very happy, although we're going to get probably like a half of an angry letter. It is actually like really gin. My dad will get mad at me, but (laughs) I am drinking some Maker's Mark. I'm going to pour it because I want people to hear that. And we will start. You know, that would be my second drink of choice, like an old fashioned with Maker's Mark or just Maker's Mark on the rocks. Listen, I felt like, because, you know, you know, I mean, my work was all happy hour. And so every day I would do happy hour because that's what you do for networking plus for fun. So I figured in COVID, if I wasn't doing it, my liver would be happier. I'd be drinking less. And on the contrary, I'm drinking a lot more. So no, no such luck in COVID. <laughs> I think there are very few vices we have access to. <laughs> So let's talk about the theater because it's so crazy what's going on right now. So like, how are you guys doing in COVID? You've been dark for a while. So what's going on? It's a great question. And I would say that there's not really one answer. Today, we are okay. We have had moments of great tumult, just like every other arts organization. We've had moments of severe stress. We've had to make some really, really difficult and painful decisions. The arts industry in general has been hit very, very hard and also affected by everything else that's going on in the world right now. I think there's just a lot of turmoil in the world and arts organizations are affected by it, just like every other nonprofit out there. I am so fortunate to have a deeply dedicated board of directors and I really can't stress enough 
how truly committed they have been to the organization and to me during this time. And that doesn't mean that I don't have to make really hard decisions. I've had to furlough a lot of people and that was the single hardest thing I've had to do. But not one board member has retreated. Not one board member has stopped giving generously. Our board chair has stepped up in remarkable ways. And so even though I'm going through a tumultuous time at my organization, I feel incredibly well supported by the 31 people on our board who want to see us persevere, who want to see us be resilient. And I just, for lack of a better word, I just feel really loved right now. And they know how hard it is for me and everybody else, but we're, we're vital to the community of Beverly Hills. They're all very dedicated to the city in which they live. And they know that in order for our community to thrive and be a great internationally renowned city with great visibility that we need an arts organization there. And we need a, we need a top notch. Everything in Beverly Hills is of this level, high level. So that is, I think one thing I can say is really remarkable, just the, the amount of support that the board and the community have shown us. That's fantastic because I know a lot of my friends who run nonprofits are kind of alone at the top. Can't rely on their board. Their boards anyway don't know what to do. People have dropped off and they're just, they're lonely and it's hard to make those decisions. So you are very fortunate and very lucky. Before we talk about you and how you got into this world and also why you have two titles. So if I'm in New York, I'm a 21 year old kid and I really want to get into theater and I want to become an actor. Obviously, nothing's going on right now, or maybe there are things that are going on right now. So I ran away from home. I'm in New York. I really want to be an actor. I'm probably a little bit good at it. What do you tell me? What can I do right now in COVID? Well, I think it's important to understand in the arts that artists are very creative, resourceful, innovative, forward-thinking individuals and we have always called upon artists to pave the way for us even during the bubonic plague so i think if artists are good at anything it's really at being flexible and creative and finding opportunities where no one else sees them so if you are obviously we also have the entire social media world which has made many many artists famous who probably wouldn't have had a chance on broadway It's a very different kind of performance. It's a very different kind of art when you're online, but social media has given many, many artists a platform that they wouldn't have had otherwise. So I think that I would probably put on my entrepreneurial hat. I mean, I think you have to be an entrepreneur as an artist and create opportunities that might not have existed. I don't think we're going to look the same coming out of this pandemic. I think we're all going to be making adjustments. We're going to be doing things in ways that we hadn't before. Everybody is producing their own digital content right now. And obviously there's a flood of it right now and it's hard to make your way through what's good, what's not, what's worth watching. But I think if I had any advice for an artist new to the field, especially during the pandemic, coming out of the pandemic, is really to look for areas where you don't see interesting things happening. And I think as a young artist too, like your technological savvy, I just, I cannot believe what my children can do on GarageBand. I don't even know what the app is on the iPhone that allows you to edit film, but I've got an 11 year old who can make her own films and they're really 
incredibly, I mean, I'm biased, okay? I love everything they do, but I think this combination of having artistic talent and then access to these tools that we never had access to is really a remarkable thing. But being an artist is hard. So I would also be mindful of the fact that it is a hard life. And if you are not a persistent, driven, resourceful person, you just have to think long and hard about whether or not it's a field you want want to enter because there's a lot of joy in it, but there's also a lot of pain. And it's interesting you talk about loneliness. I think being honest is often very lonely, very, very lonely when you're trying to perfect your craft at home. It doesn't matter if you're a writer or a ceramicist or if you're a singer, you know, you're going to be spending lots and lots and lots of time at home alone. And you have to be comfortable with that. It is, that can be very lonely. And if you're a famous artist, you're traveling. The famous pianists I know and the famous actors I know, they're often on a plane and they're often by themselves. So anyway, I could go on and on. <laughs> That's fine. If you keep going on, we'll just cut it out in, in post. So don't worry about it. Um, you know, <laughs> My seven minute story is going to come to a... <laughs> we'll see. It's all up to Ashley. She's the one. She's the one who can cut and okay. paste. You know, it's funny when you're talking about like young kids these days. You can see me, obviously the audience of three people at this point can't, but I couldn't even figure out how to put the microphone together. I'm talking into Zoom on the camera, but I don't have a microphone because I couldn't even figure out how to plug it into my computer. So I'm useless, just so you well, know. Well, you and I went to the same school of technology, clearly. Useless. <laughs> I wanted to just sort of now talk about that 21-year-old who's uploading things online. I know you have an artistic director, right, at the theater. Are you watching? I mean, are you going online looking for, for interesting things? Or is that that person's job? And if you were, like, what would you be looking for? Well, first of all, it's a great question. And in general, he and his team are tasked with setting the artistic vision for the organization. Now, when you're setting an artistic vision, you have to think about a lot of different things, not just what you like. You have to think a lot about the community in which you operate. And Beverly Hills is, we are not just only about Beverly Hills. We are about Beverly Hills. We're about LA. We're about Southern California. And now we're really working on having a bigger national and international reputation as well. Nonetheless, our core of support comes from the community members of Beverly Hills who feel deeply, deeply attached to what was the former Beverly Hills Post Office, and is now a thriving arts campus. I think I told you, right, that the post office that you're in was where, when I grew up, I went to that post office to drop off my college applications. Like, I very clearly remember dropping, that's, no one listening these days remembers those days, but where you actually had to, like, pull your college applications. So I remember that building freaked me out, because that was a place I got a lot of rejections, because I mailed things out from there. Oh, come on, Matt, look where you are now. I'm sure there were a few acceptances in there. Yeah, right. All the, exactly, doing this podcast for all of our listeners. But yeah, so, so I'm sorry I cut you off, so you were saying. I am an artist by training, and I will always be an artist. I was a pianist from the time I was five. I was a competitive pianist. I went to music school. I will always be deeply invested in programming. And I think in my role, you have to have deep knowledge, deep appreciation, deep awareness. You have to. Even if I'm not the primary decision maker in terms of what goes on stage. But the other thing in LA, I am so profoundly interested in the classical music scene in Los Angeles. And just for my own edification and my own background, I want to know as much as I possibly can. I mean, this has been a great center 
of classical music, especially since Walt Disney Concert Hall was built. So I keep in very close touch with a lot of musicians that I've worked with in the past, conductors, artists. I hold those relationships so close. And I learned a tremendous amount from them as I run this organization. So no, I'm not the primary decision maker when it comes to programming, but I certainly have, I would say, some influence just as the person who runs the organization, but also someone who is and has always been deeply dedicated to classical music. And we have a fantastic space for classical music, the intimacy, the sight lines, the acoustics, it's ideal. I mean, I love Walt Disney Concert Hall too, but it's a very different kind of music going experience, large orchestra. Our space for chamber music and solo classical artists is really, I mean, I just, this is me, but I think it's unrivaled. I think it's just a perfect space. By the way, I love the space too, but like I said, it gives me the PTSD from dropping off those college applications. (laughs) And I think, by the way, I applied to like 19 colleges, which is insane, but- uh, We all did. I'm pretty sure we all did. It's so now I feel like it's so easy, right? Because can't you just like digitally like send it by email? Isn't that I think everything is online now. Yes. There's no more no more going to the post office. I'm a typewriter. I feel like you should, you know what, now that your kids are home in COVID, you should make them use the typewriter. Just like, you know, for funsies like we did. Yes. And in fact, it's funny you should mention that because my older daughter, first of all, she has a record player. It's very important. We have vinyl in the house. And secondly, she does have a typewriter. Now, it is an electric typewriter, so she has no idea what it means to be on a (laughs) mechanical typewriter and the power it demands one's fingers to even type your name. There's not really an understanding there because with the electric typewriter, of course, it's it's much lighter. It's a lighter action. You can also make a mistake and go back. That's right. They don't really know what it means, though, to get whiteout all over your typewriter. (laughs) That, that I think, is not... They're not using a lot of whiteout these days. What do you think, though, that your artistic director that you would be looking at for my 21-year-old self in New York, putting something online, what would be something that might catch your attention? Well, look, unique voice, right? Unique, distinctive voice in the field. And of course, it depends on art form as well and and, and genre. But let's just break it down into music. I'm going to look for someone who really, my favorite, favorite pianist right now, and For me, nobody compares to what he is doing right now. His name is Viking Ur Olafsson, and he's an Icelandic pianist who actually was 21 years old in New York and studying at Juilliard. And I'm just sort of thinking about what he has done in the last few years that really distinguishes him from every other great pianist, because there are so many of them. First of all, he's a musician with a multitude of skills that not every musician has. So he's an arranger as well. He has taken all of these great works of Johann Sebastian Bach and arranged them for piano. I will tell you, the Bach purists don't often look kindly upon people who A, play Bach on the piano instead of a Baroque instrument, and B, God forbid they take an organ piece and do a transcription for piano. So I don't think he cares, and I certainly don't care because it is truly the most extraordinary, exquisite playing. He's doing something with those arrangements and one of the greatest composers ever that no one before him has done. He's also pairing that music with music you wouldn't normally pair it with. So he just recorded some keyboard works by Ramon. He paired them with Debussy. So I just, like, it's his programming, his, his own sort of programming for piano 
is really eclectic and unusual and I think sort of defies expectation. He has a look that no piano, he's a really cool Icelandic guy. I don't know what to tell you. He's from the land of Bjork. <laughs> he does. And he, you know what? He translates really well on film. So he has worked with some great, great cinematographers to make fantastic, innovative videos that accompany his piano work. And I know what's interesting because he, he did come to Disney Concert Hall about a year ago. He actually was not on the season. He was not the pianist that was supposed to play that night. He ended up being a replacement and for a great pianist named Murray Pariah. So he came in and he did his Bach on the first half, Philip Glass on the second half, which was staggering. And I mean staggering. And then everybody stood in line. And I mean this line wrapped around Disney Concert Hall to get his LP. Wow. I mean, yes, he's on Spotify and everything else as a good 27 or 28 year old should be, but it was his LP, his signed LP that was the hot commodity that night. He's really created a path for himself in a completely inundated market and has just, you know, he's up here right now. And I noticed the Ojai Festival just slotted him in as one of their primary artists for next summer. So I already have my tickets. If we can't do a festival next summer, I quit. That's it. I quit. Yeah, I know. I know. Well, especially outdoors. There's got to be a way for me to spend a festival with Viking or Olafsson. First of all, his name cracks me up. Viking? What is it? Viking what? Viking well, what? it's like Viking, as right? in right. the great Vikings of the past, with a U-R on the end. Sure. Vikinger. I have no idea in Icelandic what it means. Yeah, but then you know where he comes from immediately. That's a great name. By the way, my apologies that I know nobody else can see this. Only you can but I am scratching my ankle because I have 19 mosquito bites because I don't know if you've noticed, but with everything else in 2020, the mosquitoes are really angry. So it's really- Well, they're very angry. angry. And this is actually a great source of tension in my household because my daughters and I are very desirable when it comes to mosquitoes and they just attack us. And then my husband and his sister who is living with us right now, not a one, not a one. I hate them because listen. Not one. No, and they're aggressive right now. They're so, they're everywhere. They're aggressive, and nobody's paying attention because we have so many other crises that we have to contend with, right? Mosquitoes. Mosquitoes are real dicks, and they love <laughs> they love me. So, like, I'm gonna just keep scratching myself, and I'm sorry that you have to see that. It's fine. I'm used to it. My daughter, her legs are just yes covered. Somebody was saying earlier today, I think, well, I'm watching, I'm still looking at TikTok and I'm too old for TikTok, but that's besides the point. And I'm waiting for the Chinese to take over my account. Somebody was saying that like, somebody on TikTok was saying like, hey, if we just find out tomorrow that aliens come down and they're starting to like eat our bodies, we'd be like, cool, 2020, 2020, makes sense. So killer mosquitoes, killer aliens. If there's not festivals next summer, that's it. I quit. (laughs) So I wanted to, I wanted to sort of pivot a little bit to you you a little bit because I think not only are there a ton of actors who want to get into this world but there are also a ton of people who want to get into management and want to get into what you do so first and I know we've talked about this before and I think this is so interesting you have two titles you're the executive director and CEO which I've never seen before so tell me why you've got both titles while I scratch my mosquito bites okay well it's a good question There are actually several answers. When I first joined the Wallace Annenberg 
Center for the Performing Arts, I was actually managing director and I was the managing director for three years and then I was promoted to executive director and CEO. First of all, I just think the title CEO, and I, I think I'm very sensitive to it as a woman as well, I think it carries a lot of gravitas. I have had the title executive director in two previous positions, and it's not to say that I didn't have the gravitas in those positions, but I don't, CEO, I mean, I have to think it comes from the corporate sector. It adds another level of, I think, significance and importance. And I, I am just noticing that a lot of my colleagues in LA and my counterparts, I mean, they're, the title managing director, CEO, executive director, president, my friend down at Seagrestrom is now the president. So yeah, I think that that's part of it. But I, I felt that after already having been executive director in two previous positions, I, I wanted a more elevated title. So you said you were a classic, a classical pianist, right? When you were, you were trained as a classical pianist. So I want to know that word cracks me up every time I hear pianist. Yeah, but you know what? You, you have said it correctly. There are two words we need to talk about. One is pianist, right? Just like cellist. It's not celloist. It's cellist, pianist. Okay. Now this one, everybody gets wrong. Accompanist. Okay. And I cannot tell you how many times people say accompanist. It's not, it's accompanist. So when you have a singer or anybody, it doesn't matter if it's jazz, classical, okay. The person at the piano is the accompanist. However, there's a lot of sensitivity around that too, because often a pianist would be called accompanist when in fact they were more of an equal and a collaborator. So back in the day, certain conservatories they would have a degree program in piano accompanying. You will never see that anymore. It's now like collaborative artistry. Interesting. As anyway, a, good job on the pianist. As a, as a gay kid growing up in LA and my mom, my mom was very much into the arts. So she would good. take the kid to the, to the ballet and to the theater and to the opera and to the um, Hollywood Bowl, which by the way, yet one more thing that I hate about 2020 is that the bowl is not happening, which is so sad. Likewise. Better happen. Listen, if they take away Halloween from me, that's it. Like, <laughs> I've already talked about the festival next summer, but I need Halloween. I need to just throw candy at kids. <laughs> that's all I want. That's all I want. It's like the simple things. But so every time that I heard the word pianist as a gay kid, it always made me happy. So just so you know, <laughs> that's something about me. Something about me. But you were talking about being a CEO. Are there... I mean, I'm assuming there are not very many women in leadership positions in theater. Well, it's changing. I mean, it's really, really changing. And I think one thing that's so notable and outstanding about LA is that, and I'm talking about the LA arts industry, so the industry to which I'm most connected, there are so many incredible female leaders. And I look at someone like Annie Philbin, who came out here 17, 18 years ago and became the, I don't know if she's director or CEO, I don't know what her title is, but the head of the Hammer. And she will tell you, it was kind of a backwater at that point. And she really paved the way for so many women. And then Deborah Borda, of course, taking over the LA Phil, also 16, 17 years ago, and turning it into arguably the most important orchestra in the world, certainly one of them. But I'm part of a wonderful, wonderful network of female CEOs in the arts industry in LA. So I actually, it's a, it's a very supportive, collaborative crew of women. I don't know at this point, I mean, I've been so spoiled by being in LA and being surrounded. I mean, the Lucas Museum just hired 
an amazing woman. I mean, I could go on and on, tons of women, the Natural History Museum. Yeah, lots of big institutions too. The Master Corral, the Music Center is run by a woman. So I don't see it in LA in the ways that I saw it 10, 20 years ago in San Francisco, BC and New York. I also know that since I entered the field 20, 22 years ago, there are many, many more training programs It used to be that if you wanted to be an impresario or you wanted to be an arts manager, you just entered the organization and you learned on the job. There were no degree programs. I taught at uh, USC in their arts leadership program. I'm looking at another teaching position and I see many, many more women. I think honestly where it becomes difficult is trying to live a life as a leader and arts administrator and have children as well, because so much of our work is at night and on the weekends. It wasn't a deterrent for me. I wanted both. But I will tell you, I have an incredibly supportive husband and partner, and we do not have, I think, I don't even know what a traditional marriage is anymore. But my parents had a very traditional marriage, and my dad worked. My mother but did not, at least she worked hard, but not in the, you know, she wasn't paid for her work. So yeah, I would love to know if LA is an anomaly, even in 2020. I think the field is changing for the better. And I see, I see more women. I think where we really need to make progress, I think we need more people of color running these organizations. And I think it's absolutely critical. And whether it's administration or artistic direction, I mean, now arts organizations, particularly in light of Black Lives Matter, I mean, this is going to be central to everybody's work going forward, I hope. Yeah, it's going to be the, I mean, it is the case in every nonprofit world right now, too. So definitely very important. Can you tell me a little bit about how you, okay, so you're in charge. You're in charge of a major theater, major organization in the country internationally. So how did you get to where you are, right? Like, I have a lot of people every day who call me who want to know how to get into nonprofit. And I can tell them a lot of things and it's what I do for a living. But I don't do theater. We don't get hired to do theater. So growth mindset. Thank you. Thank you for, you know what? You did hire us. So thank you for that. (laughs) What do you, again, let's go back to the 21 year old. So I'm a 21 year old. I want to be you. I want to be in charge of the theater one day. What do I do? How do I get there? It's a great question. And if we're really talking about administration at this point and not performance, I do think there are a few different avenues. I will tell you, I started without question at the very, very bottom and I did not skip a step. I worked all the way up. I have had just about every job a person can have on the administrative side of an arts organization. Um, Just which one was your least favorite position that you had? Oh no, I can't. I can't ask (laughs) the organization that where I was the least. Not the organization. Which one was your least position? What did you have? Well, let me just tell you what I was really bad at. Okay. okay? Uh, Because when I was working at Juilliard and I was working in the opera department, and it was that opera department at Juilliard is every bit as. I mean, it's high stakes. Opera is high stakes, it's high risk. And that was true at Juilliard too, because technically speaking, they're part of Lincoln Center and their big opera performances that involve their most advanced students, the Juilliard Opera Center, they were considered performances at Lincoln Center. And they have their own beautiful, beautiful theater where these opera performances 
took place. So it was high stakes. It was high risk. It was very stressful. It was very, very busy. This is one of the things I would say to someone who wants to get in the field, like beggars can't be choosers all the time. Do what people ask you to do. That's how you're going to get the experience. And this was a department where there just simply weren't enough people to do every job that needed to be done. And so I was asked to do all sorts of things. But one time they didn't have an assistant director for a Mozart opera, Cosi Mentute. And I was just a body. They're like, we cannot start this opera without an assistant director in AD. I didn't even know what an AD was in opera, honestly, at the time. This was many, many years ago. So I said, fine, I'll just be the AD. And look, there's a tremendous art, obviously, to being a director, but there's also a, there's a lot of technical knowledge you need and notation and all of these things I didn't know. I was terrible. I was, I was a deep disappointment to the director and I have never been so happy as I was when the real AD who was trained to be an AD, you know, on route to being a director finally, finally showed up. So, I mean, it was miserable. And I think for me being an AD for the first time, you don't want to do it in New York. That is just not where you you want to just be pushed into a show without any experience or knowledge whatsoever so first of all i don't want to do anything in new york because it's disgusting but (laughs) to be an ad i mean that's pretty cool if they were like hey you don't know how to do this but let's just make you an ad so like what is the just because i don't know what does an ad actually do we'll really support the director and really be second in command to the director but a lot of it was as the director and i look i'm not an opera director either i'm an administrator I support the director, I help the director, but I do not direct. And I know very little about directing in general, but I remember where I really fell down the job was trying to note in the Mozart score, his directing of the opera students. It's almost like writing down choreography. I think that I was supposed to be notating every single move he was asking these singers to make so that we had had a record of it. And I think the other reason you want a record, if I'm not mistaken, and again, I'm I'm now talking about something I know very little about, but a lot of these opera productions are remounted. If you're going to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars in an opera production like David Hockney's The Magic Flute, okay, it's an iconic production that now is done by lots and lots of different opera theaters, and he has a a production of Turndot, too. But someone has to notate that, right? So, and often the AD too, like I I knew ADs and directors who actually toured with productions, helping them mount them in other locations, different from where the opera actually originated. So let's just say, I didn't know what I was doing. Everyone was deeply unsatisfied. I'd never been an AD again. It was was a brief moment in my, I was just trying to be flexible. Every single day that I do, and I say anything, my business partner also feels like I don't know what I'm doing. So if it makes you feel any better, I look at her face and every time I say anything, she always looks uncomfortable. So it's amazing to me that anybody from my office is even allowing me to do this podcast because, again, for the three listeners out there, they're not going to care what I have to say, but as we grow. Before, <laughs> and I care what you have to say. <laughs> I care what you have to say. So here's the thing. I feel like we've been more than a half hour in and I haven't even gotten to how you got to where you are now. So would you be open to coming back to a second show? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Anytime. This is fun work. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. So here's what I want to do. I want to make us 
do a second show. Maybe we can do this next week. And then our listeners could hear a little bit more about our listener, listeners, listener, who knows, <laughs> could hear a little bit more about how you got from, first of all, how you got to New York and then how you made it all the way here. On top of that, I do have some lightning round questions that I want to ask you anyway. So I think this is a great place to stop, um, my friend. I want to thank you very much. Of course. Rachel Fine as Executive Director and CEO of Beverly Hills. I want to thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, And we will come back very shortly with your second interview and story about how you got to where you are today. It sounds great. I look forward.